So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 5. That's where we're going to be at today. If you haven't been here, we've been in this series on Acts for several weeks. Um, and if you look at the book of Acts, what you, you see is Acts is the second volume of a two-volume series. And the writer of Acts is a man by the name of Luke. Um, we learn about Luke and the gospel of Luke, or Luke writes his first part, um, telling about what Jesus did from his incarnation and proclaiming the kingdom, providing healings, dying on the cross, um, ultimately expressing what the kingdom of life of God is like here in this world, and then he resurrect. Part two is he writes to the same man that he wrote in part one in the gospel of Luke. Part two, the gospel of Acts, he writes ultimately to say this is what Jesus continued to do. So Jesus is exalted, but the way Jesus continues the plan and mission and purposes of God is by the spirit through the church, the people like you and I. So we become witnesses ultimately to the gospel by the spirit in such a way that we participate in God's grand missional purposes for the world. And so one writer said it this way, the way that you think about what Luke is doing and the gospel of Luke and Acts is this, is that he is strengthening um, the church and understanding how to live with our faith when there's opposition. And he's doing this by our reading and experiences that continue to reorient us to the mission of God in such a way and calling us to be faithful to that mission. So as we learn and as we continue to see what God was by the Spirit doing in his church as witnesses, now we can t today can be strengthened by it through our reading and his experience as God's people and how we're faithful in the face of opposition. In fact, the text that we have this morning is like that, that we see once again that God himself finds his people uh, being faithful to him and there's opposition. Two weeks ago when we looked at chapter four, that happened. Last week there was this, uh, Luke wrote just to let us know the church was not perfect. If you weren't here, there was a, a man and a woman, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they died in the church service, y'all. So I'm just saying, do not lie to God, right? And so, so the message was way better than that, but uh, we'll taught it last week. And today we see the opposition again. And so we're going to ask the spirit of God to bless our time together as we uh, find ourselves hearing the scripture and uh, prayerfully entering into the story in which God has us to enter into faithfully in the person of Christ. So do you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your good, good, good gifts to us. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your son, Jesus. And how in Christ, Lord, that we have not only been forgiven of our sins, but Lord, welcome into the family of God to participate in the family business. Lord, to show the world of your redeeming purposes and how you were saving not only souls, but all of creation in the work and through the work of Jesus. Father, we thank you for a gospel that is big enough for all of our issues and all of our problems, individually and systemically and even cosmically. Jesus, we ask that we be able to see you as true and high and lifted up, that your spirit would reign and you would fill us in such ways that we may be able to be refreshed and encouraged in Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Um, when I came to college 17 years ago, um, came out from, from Los Angeles to Arizona, um, I had an idea of what Christianity was. And what I mean by that idea is I had a concept of what Christianity was. I grew up going to church and kind of knowing what to say and what not to say and so forth, but never had a deeply rooted faith in Christ. And the way that looked like is mainly I just looked at the morality, the things that I would say or not say. So when I came to college, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to be a Christian, which basically meant I wouldn't use certain language and so forth. Um, it took me, and there were things I said I would never do. And it took me probably no less than maybe the first two weeks of the semester to go, never mind. Right? And, and, and found myself completely living a different nar narrative, a different story. Uh, basically, I just became and participated in the culture that I was around. 
And I became like the people who are, I was around, but I never would have said that. And then when I went back home for Christmas, I came back to my context. And I remember my mom and my, my brother and my sister and my friends were like, man, you're different. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm the same old me, you know. Um, and they're like, no, 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 you, you're different. And, and part of it for me was embarrassing because it felt like, man, did I become somebody else? But the reality of it is you do kind of become like your culture. Tim, Tim Keller says this, that culture is like the rain. No matter how much you put on, you're still going to get a little wet. And I remember one of the first Christian messages as a believer when I, when I accepted Christ at the very end of college, right after that fifth year that you're all supposed to have. Um, <laughs> my mentor at the time was teaching a bunch of athletes, and he asked the question, do you want to be a thermometer or do you want to be a thermostat? And he talked about that. He said, you know what a thermometer does? A thermometer, it ultimately, it checks the temperature of the room, um, and whatever the temperature is, eventually it adjusts to that temperature. Do you want to be a thermometer, or do you want to be a thermostat? And what a thermostat is, a thermostat may come into the, uh, the room, and the room may be hot or cold, but it sets the temperature, and over a period of time, there begins to be change in the climate and the room of which it's, it's at. He says, do you want to be a, therm- a thermometer or a thermostat, right? And he was talking about what we as Christians, as people of God, why we are called in this particular culture. Like why God didn't just save us and then just zap us out of here, but he left us here. And we see that, we see that in the beginning of Acts, that God says, I have a mission and I have a plan. It's not new. It's actually something that started from the very beginning of creation. I've included you into that mission and ultimately to join in what God is doing in some ways of a thermostat to live faithfully, though we may not feel or experience the transformation and change in our culture, but as we remain faithful to the task in which God has called us to do and our identity purposes of being witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection and the coming of the spirit and the kingdom of God in such a way that over a period of time that we don't adapt to our culture, but we give our culture clues of what God is doing in this world. Like that is something uniquely different. And what we see in the book of Acts is Luke is not just giving us clues. Luke is telling the story of how God's people have done this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if we desire to find ourselves to be in a culture that we don't become like the culture or we don't try to create some separate culture, but we are in the culture in such a way to give hope and hints of the gospel in such a way that people see an alternative life, then we have to look at the way our brothers and sisters in Christ before us have lived in the face of opposition. Amen? So that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you're with me in Acts chapter 5, we're going to start in verse verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regular, being done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together at Solomon's portico. N- none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the number, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them in cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. This first section here, all we see again, I shouldn't say all we see because it's pretty amazing. Um, What we see here is that the people of God, the apostles, are doing what Jesus called them to do. And God is authenticating the purpose and presence of his spirit in such a way through signs and wonders through the apostles. That he's bringing about healing in such a way to say not that those healings would be permanent, but for a time they would begin to see how the resurrected life, the new life is leaking in through the preaching and proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. And when you read this, it should sound familiar because it sounds very much like in the gospels when we read about the ministry of Jesus. 
that people would bring their sick to Jesus, that people would not just want to be in his shadow, but there was one lady who had been bleeding for 12 years who said, if I can just touch the, the, the very edge of his tall T, then, then, then maybe, maybe I will be healed, right? Context, you guys got it, right? So, so you have this first part, and it's similar to chapter 4 where they heal a person. This time God works through them to heal multiple people, and then there's opposition, so before the last service, somebody said, hey, are you going to have sermon points? I like to take notes, and I like it when you have points. I don't have any points, so I made some up for the, for the, for the day. The first one is, haters are going to hate, point one, <laughs> all right? So the miracles are going, verse 17, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. So point one, haters are going to hate. There's good things going on. People are getting healed. They're not breaking any laws. They're ultimately revealing who God is and his purposes. However, there's a group of people who is in opposition and to the people of God in the church. And those people are very religious people. These are their family. These are their friends. Ethnically, they're both Jewish people. And you have the Sanhedrin, which we talked about um, last chapter. It's a group of people, about 70. There's a high priest. There's some Pharisees. There's some Sadducees. And they're like akin to the Supreme Court. Like, they work alongside the empire, which is Rome at the time, and they kind of mingle with Rome, and they kind of got a little bit of Rome's power, but they get to oversee, and they get to make the calls what's going down in Jerusalem. And so they have a little power and authority. They believe that the way God is going to usher in his kingdom, they believe the way God through his power is going to restore and bring hope to Israel is actually through the way that they practice their religion and guarding the temple and so forth. But that's not what the church believes. Um, up until this point, they had been together. We're waiting for the Messiah. We're longing for the kingdom. The king came, and the king died, and the king was raised. And the people of God, in this moment, the Jewish men and women that begin to trust in him, they said, this is what God is doing. And the Sanhedrin said, no, nah, no, nah, this is what God is doing. Okay, no, this is what God is doing. No, nah, this is what God is doing. So there's opposition that's happening there. The Sadducees um, actually become more of the the, the the criticism as opposed to the Pharisees. In the Gospels, you see that ultimately, the negatively, it's the Pharisees that are talked about, but now it's the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of people who believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They believed in it in a literal sense. They didn't believe in oral tradition, so they didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in the miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were never looking for the resurrection. Ironically, the, the people of that sect that was most likely to experience and follow Jesus were the Pharisees. Because they believed in understanding the Torah and its, its broad implications for our life. They actually believed in the purity of God's people. They believed that there would be a Messiah, and they believed that there was a resurrection. They believed the kingdom was coming. They just didn't believe it was Jesus, but many, many of them were starting to believe that. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they had power that was not from God. They had tethered themselves and married themselves to the power of the culture and the powers that be, primarily Rome. They were affluent people. They had their authority. And the reason why there was opposition was not because they just believed that the Messiah was not, they didn't believe the Messiah was Jesus, but ultimately they believed that if this sect continued, it was going to hurt them socially because people didn't need them anymore. They would trust in Christ and have a new community. That it would, it would hurt them in some ways because they said there were no miracles and no resurrection, yet this man named Jesus died and was rose again, and now all of these things are been done through his name and his power and his authority. And even including the miracles they didn't believe in, the whole people, the people around were experiencing and seeing it. And they were saying, this is not us. This is Jesus. And so there's conflict there. And so the haters hated. And what they did when they found out they were healing people, they arrested them publicly and they put them in prison. 
first time we saw this in chat, after Chacks, Chacks, Check, check, one, two, three. Um, in Acts chapter four, is that it was just Peter and John. Now we see it's all the apostles and they're in prison. So point number one, haters are gonna hate. Point number two, God don't care. All right? Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison, prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and begin to teach. So here they are in prison again. And Peter and John are like, hey, guys, we should get used to this. They keep just kind of throwing us in prison. We're going to be here for a while. They're probably praying that somebody would like put up a house or something so they can get out of prison. Like, you know, that's what you do when you get people. None of you guys never had anybody in prison before. All right. So that's what you do. Um, And then. But what happens? No one puts anything up. An angel shows up. An angel shows up, unlocks the doors. And my assumption is they're like, what are we supposed to do? And the angel was like, listen, I'm an angel. Go out into the middle of the temple, which for them, it wasn't just the religious center. It was actually the center of life. This would be your cultural center. And I want you to go out there and I want you to tell them about this life. Like, tell them about this life. And there's a few things that I appreciate about this. One is that the angel of the Lord is sent from God to tell the people of God to tell the world about this life or to be about this life. And so if you change the, the, the language there, ebonically, be like, we're supposed to be about that life. That point number three. And so if we're going to follow Christ, we have to be about that life. So what is that life that they went into the cultural center and began to proclaim? This was a gospel. And it wasn't a little gospel. It was the gospel, which was massive. And this gospel in itself started with God creating And then God creating in his creation, the humanity. And as humanity sinned against God, that God didn't quit on his people because he loves us. And he loves his plan of redeeming all of creation. And so God began to start this plan of redemption by choosing Abraham. The men and women in the court and the temple, they would have known about Abraham. They said Abraham is what God, God chose Abraham in spite of who he was, but by his grace. And he developed a family and a people. And those people find themselves in slavery, but God didn't quit on them. Because God freed them. He raised up a band named Moses. God freed them through miraculous signs. He's always been doing this. And then God's people sinned against him again. But you know what? God stayed faithful to his promises, and he brought them into the promised land. And they lived there, and he gave them leadership, and King David and Solomon and so forth. But even their leaders had their own issues. They couldn't be their saviors and redeemers. And then the people who followed their leaders did not do what God called them to do. And God says, if you continue to do this, I'm going to allow another people to come and take you into captivity. And that's exactly what happened. But God didn't quit on his people or his plan because he loves us and because he loves what he's doing and redeeming and storing all creation. And that God himself purged them of their idolatry then. And we hear about some of the faithful men and women in that time, like Esther and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or in my church, Shadrach, Meshach, and one bad Negro. (laughs) The things that I can say that other pastors can't. (laughs) Point number four. So God had been faithful to them, and they, they, he brought them back to the promised land. They rebate the temple, and they were desiring the presence of God, and they did not hear from him for 400 years. And then God's presence showed up, and it showed up as he put on flesh to show the love, the love of the world and love of the Father and Christ. 
And they begin to speech about Christ and how Christ established his kingdom that all of Israel had been longing for and how this Christ was crucified and how this Christ in his blood brought a new covenant and not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace that we may participate in what God is doing and know what God is like and in Christ be truly human as a people. And in his resurrection, he gave us new life. This is the life that God is calling his people to be about that particular life. The mission of God as revealed in the person of Christ, empowered for us by faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The angel said, tell everybody that. Like, go, go and do that. Now, here's the thing. Nobody really like saw them get released from prison. Um, The high priest is not really down with people just leaving prison, um, doing the very things that they were arrested for to get to from the beginning. Yet, they're faithful to the plan and the purposes of God. Amen? So the haters continue the hate. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and the synod in Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the, offi- the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guard standing at the doors, but when we opened it, we, we found nobody inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the, and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. You see what's interesting about this, this group of people? They really don't have an identity. On one hand, they find themselves submitting to the powers of the world, and that that being the empire and the culture and the political culture that was dominating them. And on the other hand, when it came to the people, they didn't even really do what they wanted to do, which was stone them because they feared the human approval of the people. And once again, you see God's people extending the mission of Jesus because this sounds strangely familiar to the life of Christ. That they wanted to do things with Jesus, but they wanted to do it behind closed doors because they knew there was something attractive about his life. And now when his people submit to his authority and his lordship and his reign and his rule in such a way, there's something very attractive about that life. And so even the high priests are going, we we don't really know what to do. We know we don't want to lose power with Rome because that would be actually siding now with this new community in Jesus. But at the same time, we don't want to believe in Jesus, but we can't really say it in such a way and take him out because the people like them. And the people are not just people who believed in Jesus. There was something of their ministry of the gospel and word and deed that made it attractive in such a way that their neighbors would say, we may not believe what they believe, but we're glad they're here. There's less sick. There's less poor. People are actually being heard and listened to. That people are being cared for and loved. Those who were on the outside are now in the inside. Those who were strange and lepers and so forth who did not, were not able to worship people are now brought into the gathering that somehow they're living exactly like the Savior in whom they follow. And they didn't, know how, they didn't know what to do. So they took him in, and they took him behind closed doors. Verse 27, and when they had brought them in, they set them before the council and the high priest, questioning them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this, this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging them on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What happens here is they're, they're about this life and the life that they're about is preaching and proclaiming publicly the life, death, resurrection, and ascension and sending of the spirit of Jesus. That the early church here did not have what we have. We, we have something in our culture called the secular and sacred divide. And then we relegate things that are more secular, like normal things in life as being secular. Almost God kind of cares, but not really. And so God kind of cares about logistics. He kind of cares about chicken. He kind of cares about Jimmy Dean's and whatever else Warren's selling. <laughs> Hustling. <laughs> Right? He, 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 he kind of cares about those things, but it's the spiritual things that he really cares about. Like when we pray, when we read our Bible, when we go to church, and the spiritual vocations, like if you become a pastor or a missionary, maybe a worship leader, not really sure, uh, like whatever, whatever the spiritual things are, and yet they didn't have this unnecessarily divide. And even more than that, why they were able to publicly proclaim is because they actually believed it. <laughs> And they didn't have a gospel that had been so truncated that it only needed individuals to believe and have their souls washed and cleansed, and then they can move on to the next. No, what they taught was the gospel of the Bible, ultimately the gospel of Jesus, and that is a, a gospel that was able to take over the all of cosmic life. That as the sovereign Lord and his lordship was not just over my morality and my soul, but his lordship was over all of creation, and they taught it as such, and they lived it as such. They also knew their opposition. Their opposition believed that the way that the world would be redeemed, or in essence, the way that history would be fully restored into its final end was in what they believed and their particular teaching and their particular understanding of the law and the way in which they lived. Like they believed this is the hope of Israel, thus the hope of the world. But the church was like, no, the hope of Israel and the hope of the world is actually in Jesus. They believe, no, 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 the hope of the world is in our teaching. They said, no, the hope of the world is in Christ's life. They said, no, 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 the hope of the world is in us worshiping at the temple. And the church said, no, no, the temple is now God's people who are somewhat of a movie trailer over a preview of what God has done and is doing and is going to do in the work of Jesus Christ. So they understood their opposition. They go, that we understand how they, how, how they proclaim the gospel. Here's where the rub comes with us. Our opposition is not the Sanhedrin. It's not the Sadducees. Like, when's the last time you talked to a Sadducee, right? That's, that's not our op- And if you have, wow, right? Wow. Point number five, wow. Um, when, it comes, when it comes to our opposition, what actually is the opposition from us making our faith public? Public. That means not just standing on a corner and yelling out Jesus, that means in every domain of life that we are trying to understand, how do we reflect, live, think, sing, write, love, marry, care for in a way that shows the love of God and his missional purposes? How do we continue to be faithful to the call that God has on us as a community as we gather and as we scatter to our various vocations that say Jesus Christ is Lord over politics and over sports and over recreation and over restaurants and everything that we're a part of. He is Lord. This is public truth and he created it good. It's been tainted by sin and his death and resurrection. He's going to redeem it. But there's not an unnecessary divide of something that's secular and that's something that's sacred because Jesus Christ is going to redeem all of it. So we have this saying, all of life is, 
uh, for Jesus, right? You've heard that once or twice before, right? And where we get that is Abraham Kuyper, who fought for the church's understanding of the biblical narrative and how to live in that narrative, meaning a gospel that was cosmic, not just individual. One of the things he said, to paraphrase paraphrase the quote, was that there is not one square inch in the entire um, scope of human existence, meaning the entire creation of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not look at and cry out, mine. Mine. Meaning there is an ownership of all of creation, not just souls, that Jesus is on the cross and through the resurrection saying, mine, and I'm going to redeem it. And the things that, that bring in spoiling of it, I'm going to remove it. The things that bring about decay, I'm going to remove it. That which is dislocated, I'm going to set it right in its rightful place. And he does it through, yes, saving souls, yes, saving individuals, but it's not just relegated to that. There's family that he says that he's going to redeem and restore relationships that he's going to redeem and restore, social things that he's going to redeem and restore. He's the Lord of all creation, and it's his. And if we find ourselves a part of him and in Christ, this blessed union that we have in receiving his grace, this forgiveness of sins that has happened through Christ that Luke is writing about, that the, the apostles are proclaiming that is at the heartbeat of our gospel, that means we begin to participate And that sort of story that is far wider and far bigger than us just reducing what we have. You say, Ricardo, how does that happen? I'm glad you asked. So the way this happens for us is we have something that we believe. We We have put science and allowed science to be in the place of authority where ultimately God is supposed to be. And hear me, science is a good gift from God. In fact, this is how this has kind of worked within the Christian church in some ways. It's almost like um, you have friends that have been in relationships with somebody, right? And then they break up with that person. Or you ask them, you ask your friend, hey, why'd you guys break up? Man, you know, it was mutual, which is usually like they broke up with them. Um, it was mutual. It, it, it's, it's, if you look at our history as Christians, you have godly men and women who understand science and they've made incredible uh, advances for the world, not just Christianity, but for the world. Ask Christian men and women who cared about these good gifts that God has given them because they had a good understanding of creation and that science is a good gift that men and women desperately need to enter into. But it was understanding God of creation and scientists and politicians and so forth, whatever it may be. And what happened was there was almost like um, because of uh, different things and enlightenment thinking and so forth, there was almost a separation somehow. And there was a breakup. And you know how people say, we broke up or we're still friends. But then the way you talk, the way you talk about them, like, you guys don't sound like your friends. Like, you don't talk to other friends like that. And that's kind of what happened with Christianity and science. A Christianity almost became at odds with science. And so someone either had to be a Christian and not be in, in science or be in science and not a Christian. And that was never the way it was supposed to be. And so what happens is now science became the dominant story of the way in which we view and understand truth and ultimate reality. And everything else is, is a subset underneath that. And so the way that this works, the way that we're taught is there is a scientific method. And then if you can, the way you'll find out fact or universal truth is if it can go through the grid of some sort of scientific method. So something like one plus one equals two. That can go through the scientific grid, uh, the scientific method. So that's fact. It's true. Everybody's supposed to believe that. It's not even questioned. Everybody's supposed to believe that. Say something like this. Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation. That doesn't go through the scientific method, which, by the way, is not something that we're looking at with critique. And so, therefore, it doesn't go through it. So it can't be true for all people and universally valid at all times and all places with all people. So it becomes a value. And what the church did, it says, okay, we'll take it as a value. And instead of having the thought of going, no, this is public truth. No, we'll take it as a value. And the reason why we know it's true is because it's true for 
me. And then we develop language like, it's just my personal relationship with Jesus. And then this over-privatization of my faith. So now my faith is really private. It's not even yours. You can't even participate. It's very, very private. And then what happens is Jesus, who's supposed to be Lord of all creation, sitting at the right hand of the Father, is now private. Um, He's relegated to the individual. And then where does he live? He lives now where? In my heart. And only in my heart. And so therefore, every other cultural narrative and every other cultural story that is actually the antithesis of the narrative in which we live in gets to layer over that particular truth because it's only a value instead of understanding how to proclaim it publicly. (laughs) And what what happens with our gospel is we take this beautiful, wide, cosmic gospel of God recreating and redeeming all of creation and we relegate it to Forgiveness of sins, my soul is cleansed, and I hang on to my born-again stick until Jesus comes back. And that's why many of us don't know what God thinks about our vocation. Many of us don't know how to be fathers and mothers and how to parent children in a way that honors and shows the mission of God. That we don't understand how to make art and make songs, to run businesses, to serve, to be friendships, to be neighbors in such a way that is not trying to manhandle our neighbors into Christianity, but to live a life that is so beautiful in the community we live in that it becomes attractive because they see it in every area of life. I'm going. (laughs) And I'm about to come to that neighborhood. (laughs) But the 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 sense that we have there is that if we become that alternate community within the culture, in Christ, now, like the early church, we begin to be, to be that thermostat that over a period of time in all these different areas that we witness to the kingdom of God and word and indeed that the people around us begin to see what God is like. And by the grace of God that's been extended to us now through us as those who have been gathered that are now gatherers that many begin to trust and follow Jesus and participate in his missional purposes in every area of life. If that's what the church was able to do. And we don't need a big church for that. You, you don't need numbers for that. That's the, that's, the, that's the economy of this world. The economy of the kingdom is like mustard seed. So grow, growing up in Los Angeles and other cities that are not necessarily super brand new is that what you have is when you walk around the sidewalks, especially in like LA in the city, you have trees that have cracked open the sidewalks. At some point, somebody took a little acorn and planted that and think, no big deal. It's just a little acorn. And then over, that's how they said it too. And then, and then over a period of time, the power of that seed, as it grew and as it grew, it cracked it. And the same way God is always working through a small, faithful group of people who do not give in to the idolatries of this world, who find themselves not escaping or hiding, but in the midst of this world, holding out the hope of the gospel and faith and repentance, ultimately in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ. And it becomes not only good news that nourishes our soul, but as we live it out in word and deed and evangelize and proclaim and work and do the things of justice that God has called us to, it actually becomes good news to the world around us. Amen? And when we faithfully do that, we know how to stand firm in opposition. Well, the way this church did it is, just to go ahead and close here, there there was a man who was a Pharisee. His name was Gamaliel in verse 34. And what he essentially says is, hey, guys, I don't know if we should be treating these guys like this. He's talking to the high priest. We pick up here in verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care about what you're about to do with these men. For before the days, of, before the days Thaddeus rode up, rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all of those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Meaning that happened, and nothing came about. And then he goes, and then after him was Judas the Galilean, who rose up in the days 
during the census and drew away of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan is undertaken of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took this advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and letting them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They were found counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. They got beat. And the Pharisee was like, listen, if this is of man, it's going to end. But if it's of God, can you really stop it? If what we are doing are truly rooted in the scriptures and rooted in the person of God, no one's really going to be able to stop it. We don't have to try to go looking for the powers of this world to proclaim and demonstrate our gospel. The power is in the seed of the gospel that grows amongst the people that are ragtag and ultimately find themselves being vessels in every area of life witnessing to Jesus over a long period of time that the culture begins to look just a little bit more like Christ until him as the sovereign Lord comes and redeems and restores all things. All we have to do is in God's grace and being filled with the spirit, witness to that good news and be a people of good news. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us without witness, that you've left a record in the word of who God is and what he is like and what your actions are for us and what your purposes are for us, what your agenda is in the world. And we see you, Father, and know you by you sending your son, Jesus, and us looking to him. And the good news, Father, is not about what we have done or what we can do. The good news is what you have already done in Christ and what you promised to fully accomplish through redemption, through Jesus, in which we have, uh, we can enter into by faith and ultimately the grace that you've given us. The Lord, that we can confess our individual sins and even our corporate sins. We ask that by your spirit, Lord, that you would not just equip us, Lord, as particular persons, Lord, only, but as a people, as a community, as a church. Help us to show, show us, Lord, how we need each other, Lord, to be witnesses, Lord, to the gospel of Jesus. That, Father, that you would draw us closer to you and closer to one another in a thicker, richer community. God, that we would give the people around us, those in this room who have never trusted in you, our friends, our families, our neighbors, and the way that we love and serve, Lord, that they would have the hope of a gospel to be able to see what it would be like if their lives were transformed in Christ. God, I pray that we would not come into this world with the powers of this world to try to take over because, Lord, you are Redeemer. That is your job. Help us to follow you and be faithful to your plan and your word and your promises. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.